0: You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 6.11, Tour de Gundam, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and three-time runner-up in the Mobile Suit Breakdown Invitational Cup, the wackiest and most prestigious international auto race open exclusively to hosts of Mobile Suit Breakdown.
0: And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam and perennial racing champion. Thank you, dad, for getting me into Formula One all those years ago. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of, I'm going to say approximately 600 patrons and subscribers because our Patreon page is refusing to load today. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporter, Badith. And additional thank yous to a couple of returning patrons and patrons who increased their pledges. As an independent and ad-free podcast, MSB is entirely listener-supported. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com slash support.
1: This week we are covering both parts of SD Gundam Mark IV, Yume no Maronsha Uchu no Tabi, Dream of Maron Company, Space Travel, and SD Gundam Mooresu. SD Gundam, Fierce Race Both were released together on home video on September 25, 1990, between SD Gundam Gaiden episodes 2 and 3. Like most of SD Gundam, Dream of Maron Company was overseen by Amino Tetsuro as the chief director and writer, with Takamatsu Shinji working as his assistant director. Oshima Yasuhiro was the character designer and animation director. Oshima is a new name here, and this looks to be one of his first jobs as animation director. He worked his way up from in-between animation on Dirty Pair and Leisner, before becoming a key animator on Double Zeta. As for Fierce Race, IT was overseen by Takamatsu Shinji as chief director, his first time stepping up into that role. The animation director was Yokoyama Akitoshi, who previously worked as animation director on SD Gundam Mark III. Okada Tōru, who was in charge of the music for SD Gundam Gaiden, continues in that role for both shorts. Fierce Races has the somewhat ignominious distinction of being locked away inside the Bandai vaults. It was released twice in 1990, both times on VHS, first on SD Gundam Mark IV and then a month later on the special low-priced Marutoku Special No. 7, but it was never reissued in Japan or anywhere else making it even more banned than the original Kukuru's Doan's Island episode. In this case, however, there is no real mystery to why the episode has been locked away. It was conceived as a parody of the popular 1968 Hanna-Barbera cartoon series Wacky Races, but the final product was more of what you might call a ripoff. You could say that Fierce Race is just Wacky Races with the serial numbers filed off, but honestly, I think that might be too generous. The more pertinent question, for which I'm afraid I don't have a satisfactory answer, is how did this get released at all? And why did the companies involved change their minds later? I don't know if Hanna-Barbera threatened them with legal action, or if it's just that some poor overworked lawyer at Bandai only got around to reviewing the episode after it was released. I like to imagine them immediately bursting into flames at the thought of all that liability. Either way, it's time for Nina's recap.
0: The Yume no Maron travel company is in trouble. Ever since the shiny new Roman travel company opened next door, they haven't had a single customer but tour guide Akagai manages to snag a few hapless travelers, and they finally have enough to run a tour. He guides them all to the spaceport, past sleek and gleaming new ships, to the company's run-down little gabsley of which the manager Kubele is also the pilot. The group consists of the new Gundam, suspicious of every irregularity, the cool and easy-going Sazabi, the elderly, recently widowed Zaku-1, the leering but quiet Goof, and the growing larger-by-the-moment Alpha Ajiru, who barely manages to fit through the entrance of the ship's passenger compartment, even with the other passengers pulling from inside and the tour guide pushing from outside. Launching without warning, the ship rockets up the mass driver, sending unprepared passengers smack into the rear wall. As they pass through their planet's atmosphere, the blackness of space is replaced by sparkling blobs of color. The guide and pilot try to pass it off as normal, but can't hide their growing panic, and their argument about what to do is constantly interrupted by the new Gundam's pointed questions and the goof, ignoring prominent do not enter signs, to come into the cockpit and ogle the cubale. Once the colors dissipate and the view of space outside the window returns to normal, there are new concerns. What is that colony? Where did those enormous mobile suits come from? And why are they shooting at the Gabthlay? The Sazabi insists it's all fake, an entertainment put on for the benefit of tourists, but sounds as though he's trying to convince himself. Their ship withstands every attack without a scratch, but is rocked and jostled by the explosions and goes careening through the atmosphere, crash landing in a river in the middle of the jungle, a massive battle going on around them. The Alpha Ajiru, growing all this time, is now straining the ship, threatening to burst it open from the inside. With a pop, her head punches through the hull. A nearby submarine takes her for a turret and fires torpedoes, destroying the ship and scattering the tour group. Doggedly, their guide takes his flag in his mouth, binds them all together with a bit of rope, and tows them to shore. Despite having no idea what is happening, he tries to describe the sights around them, only to be blown up, stepped on, or crashed into, as much larger mobile suits fight all around them. One explosion propels them all onto a ship, and they are still on it when it launches. Again, space becomes sparkling blobs of color. When they land, it's in a dense jungle, volcanoes in the distance, and mobile suit dinosaurs looming over them. Even while they run for their lives, the Ekagai keeps the tour going. And as the end titles say, it never ends. A full day for racing in the SD Gundam Multiverse, and the teams take their places at the starting line while beautiful young women display the gleaming trophy and fabulous prizes that will go to the winner. First up, the Musha Gundam and Zeta in a traditional ox cart. Then the Night Gundam in the La Coupe. Deguin and Rebel ride in the 10 million horsepower G3. Bright drives a gun tank with his new recruits team of baby gyms. And child versions of Amuro and Char drive the children's special. They are followed by the Zagok and Gog in the Crazy Angler, Haman, Four, Rue, L, Chris, Pudu and Puru in the Gundam Gals 7, and the three Zaku brothers in their feudal tea house on wheels. Rounding out the field are the Nisei Gundam in the Nisei White Base, and Yazan and Gemon Gemon in the Double Zero Machine. Three, two, one, they're off! The G3 stalls at the starting line and is forced to retire from the race. Barely underway, and the Zaku brothers are already celebrating certain victory, and… what's that? The Double Zero has deployed the first of its dirty tricks, a fake crosswalk and traffic light. Every other car stops, but the 00 speeds through and takes the lead, dropping caltrops to keep the other teams from catching up. Musha Team receives some outside help, the Ninja Onmitsu leaps in and removes the hazards, but the 00 had a backup plan and drops another load of caltrops. Nisei Gundam tries to pick these up, but they're bigger than he is, and he and the caltrops are flattened by the gun tank, and he drops into last place. Despite stoplights, the 00 is driving through a railroad crossing, and ouch, that train came out of nowhere! I don't see how they can recover from an accident like that. Coming up next is Lake Luna 2, where the road splits in either direction before coming together on the far shore. You're not going to believe it folks. The crazy angler has driven directly into the water. It's an amphibious car. They're making great time and this could put them in the lead. The children's special has pulled over. Could it be car trouble? No, it's that do not touch sign and the rope it's attached to. Amrokun and Sharkun have found it impossible to resist. It seems the rope was attached to a cork at the bottom of the lake, which is now draining away and taking the crazy angler with it. The crazy angler is out of the race. Now on to Mount Grips where, I can't believe it, the double zero car has caught up. While the rest of the teams navigate the tight switchbacks up the mountain, Yazan and Gammon use their car's spring-loaded grapnel to leap ahead. They've littered the road behind them with mines. But wow, every other car dodges the trap, and conscientious little Nise Gundam picks up the mines and drops them out of the way directly on to the unsuspecting 00 car. Hoisted by their own petard folks, and once again they've lost the lead. On the way to the next stage, the road goes vertically up a cliff. Not a problem for most of these cars, but the Gundam Gal 7 is stuck until they find an elevator, and... Oh, the poor Nisei Gundam! Somehow it's managed to get in an elevator going down! Will he ever make it out of last place? At the top of the cliff, the teams are encountering snow so deep they have to tunnel through it. Not to mention, the Yeti. And they've come to the frozen lake. It's a treacherous drive and the thick ice on the far side of the lake breaks up, dumping the double zero into the freezing water while the other teams make it safely across. Finally, the desert stage. In spite of all their setbacks, Yazan and Gemon are still in the running, and they've knocked down some rock formations to block the road behind them. Oh, but one of the Pillars of Rock fell the wrong way and has crushed their car. This is it, the end of the race. The three Zaku brothers are in the lead when OH NO! Their celebratory watermelon breaking has cut the feudal teahouse mobile clean in half. Brights too close to avoid the wreck crashes right into them. It's a pile-up, one car after another, smashing to a halt. From last place, it looks as if the Nise Gundam will coast to victory. There he goes, and… it's a fake finish line, the race isn't over! The other teams are all carrying their vehicles, only the double zero is still driving. It's their race to lose. They hit their high-speed jet boosters and… that's it, that's the race. Yazan and Gemon are first across the finish line. And hopefully they can collect their prizes when they return. Their jets took them straight past the end of the course and into space.
1: Part of the reason that we're doing these together is because it gives us a rare opportunity to compare and contrast the distinct directorial styles of the two men who had the biggest influence on SD Gundam as an animated property, Amino Tetsuro and Takamatsu Shinji. So we're going to be talking about these two as individual episodes on their own merits, but we will also be talking about how they relate to each other and what the differences between them may reveal about these two creators.
0: I thought both of these were pretty decent.
1: Yeah. While I don't think either of them is the best SD Gundam short that I've watched, both of them are very well executed, and I would say in the, you know, upper...
0: And they each have some good jokes, some solid, funny characters. Not stupendous, but not (laughs) bad.
1: And there's nothing in them that really pulls you out of it. There's no really gross moment that makes you sit back and go, "Oh, oh, Oh, you can just let yourself be carried along by the decent to good quality storytelling, jokes, and animation on display. And each of them has a few moments that are, I think, really interesting, really worth thinking and talking about and worth watching.
0: Of the two, I think the Wacky Races style short is the funnier one, but the Trip to Space short has some very interesting cultural stuff kind of embedded <laughs> in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what they do with the animation is surprising and a lot of fun.
1: I would say Wacky Races, which is not its actual title, but for convenience's sake, let's just call it that. <laughs> Wacky Races is the better executed on a technical level, but in a conventional kind of way. Like, it is what you expect it to be. From the beginning to the end, they sort of establish in that opening the kind of short it's going to be, and then it just is that. The scenes last the amount of time that they feel like they ought to last. The cuts between shots, the cuts between scenes are in the right places. Whereas Maron Company is a little looser, a little weirder. It's pulling influences from more different places. It's doing more interesting, but maybe less polished work.
0: We'll come back to the second of the two shorts. But it's interesting to me that you felt like it was less polished in the space adventure one. Because a major aspect of that short is the inclusion of all of this new animation (laughs) in the style of the animation in 0080, which Mm -hmm. looks, to me, a lot more polished than much of the other animation in either of these shorts.
1: There's definitely some truth to that, because, I mean, these are fully realized, detailed, non-SD, conventional Gundam mobile suits, and in moments, animated the way we would expect to see in a, a proper OVA or show. But something about the way they're paced, something about the way it's edited, the way the shots come in and how short they are, how rapidly different things are being thrown at us. It all feels a little, I mean, gosh, I guess it feels a little (laughs) Tomino-like.
0: I attributed that feeling to the fact that the scenes that are being animated are things that happened in first Gundam but they're being portrayed in such a different style of animation from First Gundam that it is disorienting. Mm -hmm. You see it and you think 0080, but you're hearing the dialogue, you're hearing characters talk, pilots in mobile suits, you're seeing the events, and your brain is saying, wait, but this happened in (laughs) 0079. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) sure. What?
1: (laughs) And there's the very recognizable Jaburo attack with the gals flying through the air and mobile suits descending.
0: And the goof and the re-entry and...
1: And and even going forward to the Salamis cruisers launching with their extra boosters.
0: I did realize the Space Journey short is a multiverse cartoon. I
1: was going to point that... Well, (laughs) so is the Wacky Races one when you think about it.
0: In two different ways, though, right? Because in the travel short, our main characters move between different universes. Mm-hmm. They start out in their own, they wind up in the one of 0079, then they wind up in the Dinobots, a Lost World style <laughs> universe where all mm-hmm. the mobile suits are dinosaurs. In the other one, it's a whole bunch of SDs whose origin is different universes coming together into whatever this place is to have the race.
1: Right. So while they take different approaches to it, both of them reveals a multiversal approach to this kind of storytelling that all of these different universes, the European medieval world of Sadrach, the Mushagundam world, the bright character who seems to have walked right out of those early SDs shorts that all of these exist in parallel, and that every universe eventually produces mobile suits of some kind."
0: I never would have imagined that I would want there to be a particular kind of SD content, but here I am telling you all, I want to watch an entire series of SD main series characters as toddlers, all toddling (laughs) around, being goofy little kids. It's like Muppet babies, if oh, any of you remember that cartoon, which is this... Muppet characters, but all of them animated as toddlers running around having little toddler adventures. But this, this
1: is the one of Amaro and Char in the children's special, like as little kids driving around in their like little little convertible.
0: Yes. It's so good. It's adorable. Pulling on the string that says do not pull, because what else would children do? <laughs>
1: And um, when they stop for lunch at the pit crew, their kindergarten teacher is Kiara just passed out at her desk. Yep. To go back briefly to what we were just talking about with the 0080 War in the Pocket style mobile suits showing up here, Izubuchi Yutaka is credited as uh, providing design assistance for this short. So it seems to be the case that these are based on his designs, which means In this short, and really only in this short, we get to see Izubuchi's take on the original RX-78-2 Gundam. We even get to see it fighting in battle. Brief, it's all of, you know, seven seconds or something like that, but it's a real treat. And we get to see Izubuchi versions of a bunch of different mobile suits. There's a brief cameo by the gun cannon mass production type, which again is the best looking of the gun cannon variations. And this one has the, I think it's 108 on the shoulder, which is Kai's number Aww. from his from his gun Aww. cannon in the movies. Nice. There haven't been that many SD shorts so far that I would recommend to a Gundam fan who was not like committed to completionism, committed to watching all of it. But this one I would recommend in part because the visuals are so interesting. You can see things here that you won't see in any conventional Gundam.
0: Before I wind up talking about more things that these two shorts had in common, I want to talk about the characters and characterization in the travel short a little bit, because it's quite punchy. They manage in a very short amount of time to give you a really good grasp of who these characters are. And it's kind of, you know, it's all stereotypes. It's not uh, very complex, but it's a 14 minute short, so.
1: And crucially, these are not stereotypes based on these characters or mobile suits presence in the actual Gundam that we've already watched. There's nothing about the Kubelay in Zeta or Double Zeta which suggests that she would become the CEO of a rinky-dink travel agency, as well as the pilot of its literally falling apart aircraft. And nothing about the Ack guy suggests a sweaty, desperate travel agent come tour guide.
0: I did wonder if the types of all of the travelers were stereotypes about the kinds of people taking those sorts of trips at that time. Uh, but that's like a research thing. I, <laughs> I don't have anything to go off of with that. They made the Kubelé exaggeratedly feminine. She's got lipstick and bright red nails and bright red high heels.
1: Speaking of the cubillet's design, I do want to mention they've drawn the cubillet with just one eye right in the center, which is a common mistake people make about the cubillet. The cubillet is not actually mono-eyed. It has two separate eyes. But I think what they're doing here is they've made her very cross-eyed. I think she does have two eyes. They're just both sort
0: of... In the middle. In the middle. She does wear, again, bright red cat-eye glasses. One of my favorite moments in this short is actually when some deep instinctive memory seems to speak to her when they're out in space and having missiles fired at them from these huge mobile suits in a universe that they don't understand And she kind of waggles her glasses and concentrates (laughs) ferociously. And uh, I don't think they get hit by any of those. The missiles explode near them, but don't hit them.
1: They kind of go tumbling out of the cloud of the explosion. So it's really unclear, but they got out okay.
0: I did not understand at all when the Kubelay kind of loses her mind and is dancing around waving fans and singing in the cockpit. I did not get what that was about, if anything.
1: She kind of seems like she's been possessed. Mm. She's kind of doing the like speaking in tongues, ecstatic dancing thing.
0: And then the tour guide... If you've been to a popular travel destination, you've seen tour guides with their little flags and armbands, uh, but he's so, so committed when he is underwater swimming with the little flag in his mouth and ropes everybody up and drags them ashore.
1: <laughs> or later when they're fleeing from the dinosaurs and he's desperately trying to do his like tour guide patter. Like This is the famous Cretaceous period.
0: Or the same even before they get launched into Dino World, <laughs> when every time he starts to say, this is the famous, he gets stepped on or blown up.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, his dedication is so inspiring.
0: Gosh, the little old man Zaku, who just keeps saying, I wish my dead wife could have seen this. And then one of the times that they all get blown up, he's like, darling, here I come. <laughs> <laughs> Dark. Also that it is Azaku that they made the old man. I appreciate that.
1: And the goof, who I assume is his grandson.
0: And then the Sazabi, I believe, is mm-hmm. the red mobile suit that's with them. That's all too cool for school, like has a <laughs> neckerchief and a guitar. And, oh, I know exactly what's going on and it's nothing to be worried about. I know all about all of this.
1: I was really wondering about that design, actually, because it's so similar to the K.K. Slider design in Animal <laughs> Crossing with the, you know, the guitar and the neckerchief together is a potent combination. And so I w- I'm wondering if it's a reference to some
0: Specific. musician
1: or actor or, you know, something like that. He also has weird shoes.
0: He does. I noticed that it looks like he's wearing platforms or ghetto or something like that. And the Gundam is maybe supposed to be from the country, like he's disoriented when he gets to the city to book his tour and gets the hard sell from the tour guide and sort of roped into something he didn't really want.
1: And he's got all of his stuff bound up in like a cloth bundle that he wears on his back. Yeah. That's the new Gundam voiced by Furuya Toru, aka Amuro's voice actor. The Sazabi is not being voiced by Char's voice actor, but the Ak guy is. Ha! In an unexpected performance from him.
0: The Alpha Ajiru is the weakest of all of them. It's clearly feminine. They give her lipstick and a very exaggerated hand position when they're headed up to the ship that feels very feminine.
1: Mm-hmm. And she seems to be like a young teenage girl like Quest was.
0: I did wonder if the joke where she's still growing and she just keeps getting bigger and bigger inside this ship was possibly a reference to something either in splat books or with Gumpla, or even in the animation where the relative sizes of mobile suits is maybe not always very (laughs) consistently portrayed or Uh if there were a trend to keep making the alpha judo bigger and bigger relative to other mobile suits whether within the movie or in uh, various sort of side documents talking about its size.
1: Hmm. Not that I'm aware of, but that does sound kind of plausible.
0: I mean, I it's, think... it's better than just like, haha, it's funny when women are large.
1: Definitely, definitely. And as I'm thinking about it, I am actually remembering that I think Izabuchi said in an interview that when he designed the Alpha Ajiru, He kind of decided to make the Alpha Ajiru a giant mobile armor on his own because he thought the movie should have a giant mobile armor in it. He had not actually been instructed to do that.
0: Ah. So
1: maybe there is something to this little theory of yours.
0: When I mentioned cultural things about this short, from the beginning, we get wordplay based off of loan words. Roman is short for romance, romance, but it can mean a romance like romantic, but it can also mean romance like adventuresome, which is a pretty good name for a travel agency, like romantic and adventurous, but that we will probably see more and more use of foreign loan words for coolness factor. It also has a sign on the outside that says traberu for travel. (laughs) Like there is a Japanese word for travel that they could use, but they say traberu instead.
1: And you're talking about the uh, tourist agency that is next to the one that our characters actually end up going with. The big, fancy, glitzy Roman travel agency.
0: The one that seems, to my eye, very obviously part of the construction boom of the 80s. Mm -hmm. A very contemporary, shiny, new building.
1: And they've got a big line of people out the street, and it's to the Roman travel agency that the new Gundam is intending to go.
0: Right up next to it, almost being knocked down by its neighbor, we have the much older building with the tile roof and the weather vane (laughs) and the wooden props holding it up. And when they try to make it fancy, all they can really do is stick lights on the outside or change the signage a little. Really, we are talking about this thirst for newness in Japan at the time, all of the new construction that everybody wants, whatever is shiny and gleaming they don't want to go to the old fashioned places the old one is called maron travel agency maron is french for chestnut again there is a japanese word for chestnut and they don't use it but we've seen a lot of these sort of syllable swap wordplay jokes in the sd gundam shorts so uh maron and roman are just close enough
1: <laughs> yep And if you're familiar with, say, Roman albums, which are these collections of essentially behind the scenes production art for anime series, usually, the Roman in Roman album is romance from French and meaning adventure. You may be familiar with some other Japanese media that includes Roman in it. And yes, that also means romance in that context. I will not explain.
0: (laughs) Moving on, there's also a funny bit of wordplay over the word beacon, which sounds like bacon uh, and involves the new Gundam saying the phrase, release the bacon.
1: (laughs) Send out the bacon already.
0: Bacon, bacon. So good. Love it. When they are under attack, the Sazabi says something like, oh, this is a show. This is the provided entertainment, which struck me because... I don't know that it was ever a very popular series, but I really loved this anime called Bodacious Space Pirates.
1: Oh, I have a conspiracy theory about this, but please continue.
0: I can't explain the entirety of Bodacious Space Pirates, but one of the plot points in it is that there are space pirates who get paid by cruise ships to attack the ship and hold people hostage and have a sword fight and basically because it's exciting and fun and everybody knows it's fake and nobody's really going to get hurt, which I always assumed was completely fake, but now the Sazabi also mentions our being attacked is not real, it's for entertainment. And now I'm wondering if this was a real thing.
1: (laughs) I'm wondering that too. Um, When I said I had a conspiracy theory, the word in the title that gets translated as bodacious is mooretsu, which means like energetic, passionate, fiery, fierce, crazy. The word in the title of the prior short that gets translated as fierce or wacky or fiery is mo. It's the same kanji as mooretsu. And in full, the title of that other short is mooretsu.
0: Well, it's actually Tiki Tiki SD Moresu. Listen. To or you. whatever.
1: <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the fact that on this one VHS release, you have an episode called Moresu and another episode about going on a space tour and getting attacked and thinking that it's just part of the service. And then somebody made an anime about that later thing. Called Moretsu. I don't know. It seems a little fishy. It seems a little suspicious. I'm connecting the dots on my corkboard with red <laughs> string. It all leads back to SD Gundam. All of it. All of Japanese culture for the last thirty years.
0: <laughs> this is a very silly, very small thing, but before we move on to the racing short, can you guess the other thing that I noticed in the space travel short?
1: Was it that the keep out sign on the door of the Gabthlay's cockpit is intentionally spelled wrong? So it's keep uat.
0: No, it was the accent of the guy doing the countdown at Jabaro.
1: Oh, oh, this is this is a good note. We should note this (laughs) because there are times in Gundam where they have somebody speaking actual English, which is always interesting because... The general assumption is that everyone is speaking English in the universal century, yet the existence of diegetic English in the story (laughs) of somebody speaking English, which is clearly a different language from what everybody else is speaking, strongly suggests that's not the case. This is one of my personal... (laughs) Pet peeves. (laughs) Not a pet peeve. Um, This is just one of my personal areas of interest in the the sort of Gundam canon is poking at these linguistic inconsistencies. So I'm going to keep doing it. I hope you don't mind. Listeners, I'm not going to stop. Luckily, it doesn't happen that often. (laughs) Here's another thing i like to point out. They're reusing that CGI colony footage from Char's counterattack once again. We
0: need a counter, I realized. It's too late now to go back, but... How many times will they reuse this footage? I'm just picturing some Bandai executive who's like, we spent (laughs) such and such many millions.
1: I guarantee you that happened.
0: We are going to use that footage anywhere we can forever.
1: I feel like there's an interview with Takamatsu of 0080 where he basically says, yeah, we already paid for it. Why not keep reusing it?
0: As I mentioned for the travel short, One of the things these two shorts both do is some pretty great, very succinct and pithy characterization of their various characters, which is quite easy to do in the race format because you just cover each one as they drive along (laughs) in front of you.
1: And the Wacky Race's Hanna-Barbera inspiration is on full display here because... They draw very broad, very arch characterizations and then they just have, they have a limited number of character traits and they show them off every time they're on screen and the announcer every time they're on screen says their name, says their number, says what kind of car they're driving. Viewed from a certain kind of perspective, what they are essentially doing is stretching not very much information out over as much time as possible and just repeating it over and over again, which fits the format because that's kind of what live sports commentary is a lot of the time.
0: The Hanna-Barbera cartoon might predate this, but I also wonder about the influence of movies like the 1981 Cannonball Run movie. Mm -hmm. Live action films that are about a big dramatic race with a bunch of teams and wacky hijinks.
1: (laughs) I mean, the idea of wacky adventure races has to be pretty old, has to be older than Hanna-Barbera's Wacky Races. But in preparation for talking about this, I did watch a couple of episodes of the old Hanna-Barbera Wacky Races. And, um, let's just say the influence is direct.
0: I mean, Gemon's dog costume, which is never explained, by the way, basically just makes him, the character's name I want to say is Mutley.
1: You're right, it's Mutley. He
0: looks identical to Mutley.
1: And they've done Yazan up to look a bit like Dick Dastardly, but more than that, their car... The Double Zero Machine looks almost exactly like a hambrabi themed copy of Dick Dastardly's car, The Double Zero Machine. Huh? They didn't even change the name. And beyond that, some of its capabilities are exactly the same. <laughs> Yazan's habit of thumping Gemon Gemon on top of the head is a Dick Dastardly move. In the original Wacky Races, there is a tank, just like the one that Bright commands. The Gals 7 is very obviously based on Penelope Pitstop, whose car includes a lever that she can use to activate the hairspray, lipstick, hairdryer, or makeup functions.
0: Important to look your best.
1: Absolutely. The G3 looks a lot like the car driven by Peter Perfect. Being blown up by your own bomb happens repeatedly in the first couple of uh, Wacky Races shorts. Like... The first time I watched the SD Gundam Wacky Races, I hadn't actually seen the Hanna-Barbera one. And so I was like, well, I know that this is meant as a parody. Maybe they're being overly cautious in locking it down and refusing to re-release it. But then after watching the original, (laughs) I I think that maybe they've made the right decision.
0: It feels much less like a parody than a straight-up copy. If we're being generous, an homage.
1: Even the bit where the announcer and Yazan talk directly to each other, and then Yazan gets run over by a train, like that basically happens in the first episode of Wacky Races.
0: A lot of the jokes are about repetition. I mean, a lot of jokes work because of humorous repetition, but so much of what gets Yazan and Gemon is they'll play a trick once and it works for them, and then they do it again and it backfires. (laughs) or something along those lines Mm -hmm, they deploy mm -hmm. the fake crosswalk and uh, traffic light which they run to get ahead of everyone but then when they try to run the railway crossing they get hit by a train
1: that's a good point
0: they use their little spring-loaded grapple to leap ahead of everyone on mount grips but then when they try to do it again they pull a mountain on top of themselves (laughs) They knock down these big pillars of stone to block the road from everybody else, but in the process, knock additional pillars of stone onto themselves. Their evil backfires.
1: And yet they still win the
0: race. But none of the prizes. (laughs) No. The prizes that include such exciting technology as electric keyboards, televisions. I think I
1: saw a toaster in there.
0: A (laughs) boombox.
1: Truly, it was the 80s.
0: Beautiful girls in bikinis.
1: Actually, one of the first things I noticed about this was that the proportions of the human characters are not the same as they have been in the prior SD shorts. They have been lengthened. They're less SD. They're only MD, moderately deformed.
0: They made the women more sexy and less potato.
1: They did, but they also made a lot of the other human characters less potato as well.
0: I actually kind of really like lala's bathing suit i'm just gonna admit it i'm ashamed to admit that i like it but i like it
1: no shame here this is a safe space even
0: though it has a zeon symbol on it
1: even though it has a zeon symbol on it just don't wear one (laughs) or cover up the symbol somehow
0: see this is my problem with wearable gundam merch i'm like okay i love wearable merch i love gundam stuff But I don't want to wear a Fetty symbol, and I don't want to wear a Zeon symbol, which removes a lot of the options for me. (laughs) I don't mind art of the mobile suits. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other, like, artwork that I don't mind.
1: You're literally wearing a Gundam t-shirt right now.
0: It's true.
1: There are six bikini girls who show up. They're not even bikinis, are they? They're like One Pieces. They're
0: One Pieces, yeah.
1: Anyway, there are six race queens who show (laughs) up at the beginning and it's Lala and Sela. Mm-hmm. By the way, further revealing the multiversal nature of this, Knight Sela is also going to show up at the pit crew for the Night Gundam. Ay. So there's multiple Sela's in this universe. Anyway, there's Lala and Sela, And then later on, there is Fa and Kiara. Kiara also appears again. But there's the two women who are holding the cup. They're very distinctive designs, and I have no idea who they're supposed to be.
0: Me neither. I noticed that. I
1: don't think they're from any of the animated Gundam so far.
0: New characters.
1: I was wondering if they were manga originals or something like that. I tried to look for any information about them on the internet and couldn't find any.
0: One of the things that's kind of fun and that makes this kind of multiverse SD story easier is they're really just building on characterizations from previous shorts. So now it's like a set thing that the Zaku brothers always celebrate before they've actually won and are obsessed with watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) We just know that about them. They Mm -hmm. will always be obsessed with watermelon. Breaking the watermelon will always cause some kind of catastrophe.
1: And because this is how SD Gundam works, it's actually a lens through which we can see the way people at the time thought about these characters. Like the fact that they make a whole joke about Bright abusing child labor,
0: Yeah, I wondered about that, if the fans had started joking about how Bright has always got these young kids piloting mobile suits for him.
1: Right. And once Yazan and Gemon seem to have been removed from the competition, Bright then is the first one to deploy his own dirty tricks. Bit of a heel turn there, Captain Bright.
0: He does at one point pull his vehicle as though he is a sled dog and all of the little baby gyms are riding.
1: One of them is lashing him with a whip.
0: (laughs) But then, of course, things reverse by the end, and they're carrying him or pulling him.
1: That's another Wacky Race's standby, contestants reduced to carrying the remains of their wrecked car.
0: When they stop at the halfway point for their pit stop, he tells the kids it's recess.
1: (laughs) And gives them, like, a three count.
0: I felt sad for the poor little Nise Gundam.
1: Oh, everyone feels sad for the poor little Nisei Gundam.
0: He just wants a friend. He's
1: just there to make friends, and God is so mean to him.
0: God is picking on him.
1: <laughs> he ends up being the butt of a ton of jokes, because, like, bad things just keep happening to him, even though it's not his fault. Everybody else who suffers, it's basically their fault. But the Nisei Gundam just, like, poor little guy.
0: Yeah. Did people just hate this mobile suit?
1: People, I think, like the Nisei Gundam a lot. Oh. Yeah.
0: Then why are we so mean to it? Because we
1: only like him so much because of how pathetic he is.
0: Did you notice that after the crazy angler gets sucked down the drain of Lake Luna 2, it crops up in the background of scenes whenever there's water. Mm -hmm. So whenever there's a river, they flow by really quickly going, "Ah," (laughs) in the background or under the frozen lake, or going over the waterfall. They're just always there in the background.
1: And I assume it's the crazy angler because it's based on the submarine from first Gundam that was called the mad angler.
0: Mm -hmm. It might even be the same word that just is no? No,
1: it's in katakana as kureji.
0: Oh, okay. So yeah, not bad.
1: Not bad at all. Pretty good. It's a shame you can't watch it.
0: We started off with you saying that you felt these two were pretty illustrative of some differences between the directors. Now that we've talked about the two episodes, I mostly noticed similarities other than the uh, sort of creative animation stuff that -hmm. they did in one versus the other. What do you see as the directorial differences?
1: (laughs) Well, in the Dream of Maron company, the Amino-directed one, It feels like he's pulling from a lot more influences, and what ends up coming out of it is a much um, weirder product that generates all of these new characterizations. I think I said before there was sort of a a looser directorial style and a, a sense of edginess.
0: It is more creative now that you come to that. It's new characterizations, it's new story, as opposed to the racist one, which is, a template pulled straight from another show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Many of the ideas pulled straight from another show, and characters pulled straight from previous SD Gundams.
1: Yes. It has its two principal sources, and it synthesizes them, and it does so in a very technically proficient, well-executed way. The other really big difference I saw in it was the music. Consistently throughout the run of SD Gundams, directed by Amino... I think we've seen him incorporate the music in interesting, unusual ways. The music is often very forward, very noticeable. The music is very, like, poppy. Sometimes it's actual pop songs, either written for SD Gundam or not, but actual pop songs of the style of the time. And they have a big presence in the short. For instance, in Maron Company... When they do the bit at the end with all the mobile suits fleeing from the dinosaurs we get a pop song and it's mixed in such a way that you really hear that song whereas the soundtrack in sd gundam wacky races is soundtracky it's basically the same tune repeated more or less ad nauseum throughout the whole short except for brief interludes for different characters themes when they're the focus And in reading commentary on the SD shorts, I've seen a few people on the Japanese side point out that this seems to be a consistent thing for Amino, not just in his SD Gundam work, but in his work generally. He's very focused on the music aspect. Now, I can't really speak to that because I haven't seen much of his other stuff, but based on what he's done in SD Gundam, I believe it.
0: We did some poking around after the fact, and the live-action films The Great Race and Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, both of which have plots structured around races, came out before Hanna-Barbera's Wacky Races. And now Tom's research on Japanese tourism and tour groups.
1: Tour groups like the one that appears in the Dream of Maron Company are ubiquitous at popular destinations around the world. In the cafes of Paris, on the beaches of Hawaii, In the ancient temples of Cambodia, or wherever there's something extraordinary to see, do, taste, or buy, you will find groups of tourists on package trips, traveling, eating, and staying together, all under the watchful eye of professional guides. That these groups are usually organized along national or linguistic lines hardly needs to be mentioned. Though a package tour of this kind may not be to every traveler's taste, the advantages that it offers are for the most part self-evident. Unsurprisingly, populous and rich countries send the most tourists abroad. The United States, China, Germany, France, Canada, Korea, Japan are all major sources of tourists, with Chinese tourists in particular spending more than $277 billion abroad in 2018 alone. That is more than the tourist spending from the United States, the United Kingdom, and France combined. Japanese tourists spent a comparatively modest $20 billion in 2018. But the situation was quite different when the Dream of Maron Company episode was made. In the early 80s, as the American economy fell into a prolonged slump and the new Reagan administration fumbled its response to the deepening recession, Japan's economy continued to soar. Japan had been an attractive tourist destination ever since the end of World War II. But starting in 1964 and continuing through the following decades, increasingly well-to-do Japanese had begun traveling overseas themselves. In 1970, the New York Times published an article that begins, They, meaning the Japanese, are all over the United States these days, in the glittering casinos here, on top of the Empire State Building, at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, in the boiling surf at Waikiki. No vacationing family of five from Omaha ever carried so many cameras. No Manhattan sophisticate ever worried so much about his choice of restaurants. And no southern gentleman was ever so courtly or polite. The article also observes, to the evident amusement of the writer, these Japanese tourists' unusual practice of taking photographs of one another standing in front of famous sites so that they could show them off back home. Per the article, 184,000 Japanese travelers visited the United States that year, 1970, four times the number from just five years prior. The U.S. Commerce Department anticipated that there would soon be more Japanese tourists visiting the U.S. than any other nationality. This must have been a pleasing thought at a time when economists, politicians, and businessmen were beginning to worry about the balance of trade between the two nations. Just three years later, that prediction came true. In the first half of 1973, more than 289,000 tourists traveled from Japan to the US, more than from any other nation. Even then, there was a tendency to travel in groups. Tour groups offered better value for money. And though the Japanese standard of living was rising rapidly, the bulk of those going abroad were not especially wealthy, and they favored closer, cheaper options like Hawaii or the Grand Canyon, over distant and pricey destinations like New York. The mid-70s surge in tourism was driven largely by economics, fluctuations in the exchange rates, Japan's growing affluence, and more than anything, a dramatic decrease in airfare. This transformed international travel from the exclusive province of the rich and the business traveler into an affordable luxury for most. But the role of the tour group in making travel more accessible should not be ignored. Besides the comfort of a large group of compatriots and the relative ease of booking a single package tour in your own language versus trying to arrange travel, lodging, food, and sightseeing all separately and in a foreign language, the package tours offered almost unbelievably cheap rates for the trip. In the mid-70s, a newlywed couple could join a group of you know, 20 or so other newlywed couples for a four-night, five-day stay in Honolulu with airfare from Tokyo and all expenses paid for $440 per person. At the same time, booking piecemeal, just the cost of a single round-trip plane ticket for the same flight would run nearly $700. Speaking of Hawaii, though, in 1960 the islands saw 14,000 Japanese tourists. By 1971, that number had grown to 180,000, and it was 225,000 just the next year after that. By 1978, the year that the new Tokyo International Airport opened, 400,000 Japanese tourists visited Hawaii alone. And where the tourists went, money followed. By 1981, Japanese investors had bought up practically every hotel on the famous Waikiki beach. While my sources do have a bias towards information about Japan to U.S. tourism, this pattern repeated identically elsewhere. In 1970, 90,000 Japanese tourists visited Paris, the most popular European destination by far. But three years later, that number was 200,000. One Japanese tourist said of Paris, Everything here is romantic for us. The policemen's kepis, the people kissing on the streets, the nightclubs, shopping, the historical monuments. The Paris we Japanese expect to see and have heard about all our lives is the Paris of writers, painters, and love. When we think of England and Germany, we think of industry and commerce. Rome is too antique for us, too removed from our daily experience. In turn, the Parisian shopkeepers called them the New Americans, saying that they spent lavishly on luxuries the way Americans had in the old days. But while many praised these early voyagers, as time went on and the numbers and spending power increased, this New Americans label took on a second meaning as complaints began to swirl about Japanese tourists behaving rudely in the manner of the old ugly American stereotype. You can detect a rising sense of alarm in the way the newspapers talk about Japanese tourism, mixed in with excitement, greed, and resentment. Articles with titles like Japanese Tourists Swarm into Hawaii, Foreigners Supplant American Tourists Here, and New York Visitors, Japanese Take Over. That last one opens with an anecdote about famed luxury purveyor Tiffany's training its staff in basic Japanese, and has some charming notes from the tourists themselves about what it is that they want to do in New York. Eat steak, see all the most famous landmarks, go to Tiffany's, and listen to jazz. As well as what they don't want to do. Ride the subway, eat at the kind of small neighborhood restaurant a New Yorker might actually recommend, and leave Manhattan. Although some Japanese guidebooks at the time did allow that Brooklyn, at least, was worth a visit if you happened to be a hardcore devotee of the movie Saturday Night Fever. Another article notes that Saks and other premium department stores had deployed a cohort of bilingual staff dressed in kimono dedicated exclusively to dealing with their Japanese customers. Although that anecdote is sandwiched in between grumblings about modern-day Japanese invaders buying up all the Mexican opals that by rights ought to be adorning New York next, racist musings about the Japanese national character, and a few casual homophobic slurs.
0: Feels very much part and parcel of all of the fear-mongering about Japanese companies buying up real estate in the United States, and the dominance of the Japanese economy, cyberpunk and movies like Rising Sun. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Tourism dipped in the early 80s but it came roaring back in the mid and latter parts of the decade. The dollar was weak, the yen was strong, the bubble economy was inflated, and there were great numbers of increasingly affluent young people with few attachments to weigh them down. Many of the tour groups noted by late 80s observers were full of young single women gainfully employed and living at home with their parents. They had plenty of disposable income to spend, and many opted to spend it on airfare to New York, necklaces at Tiffany's, and stakes at or near a jazz club, but not on subway tokens. In 1988, a week-long package tour of New York with airfare and hotel accommodations cost around $2,700. A young woman working as a secretary or office lady might earn about half of that in a month, But if she couldn't afford the outlay up front or did not want to save up for it, she could simply avail herself of a low-interest traveler's loan, paying only 10% of the cost of the trip up front. In 1989, driven perhaps by a sudden vogue for jazz in Japan, tour groups began venturing north into New York's Harlem neighborhood, booking blocks of seats at the Apollo Theater, tables at Sylvia's, and sitting in the pews at gospel churches. This was a remarkable shift, Harlem had a reputation in the Japanese popular imagination as, and I'm quoting here, the epitome of all that is dangerous and hopeless about urban America. But for the tourists, that sense of adventure was part of the appeal. One tourist said with evident pride, most people wouldn't come here. They would be afraid. But I thought, by all means, I'd like to see it once. Of course, the reality was a different matter. And some seemed a bit disappointed to discover that the neighborhood was not actually that dangerous. It was just a black neighborhood. (laughs) And I have to take a brief digression here to revisit War in the Pocket. After we finished covering the series, I found myself going back to look carefully at the backgrounds of the Lebo or Rebo colony where most of the action occurs. In a few scenes, there are unmistakable references to stores in Harlem. At one point, Al runs past a sign for a place called Sikulu Record Shack, a reference to Sikulu Shange's famous music shop The Record Shack on 125th Street near the Apollo Theater. Shange came to the U.S. from South Africa in 1964 as a performer in a traveling show bound for Broadway. But with the brutal apartheid regime still in place back in South Africa, Shange elected not to return, seeking refuge in Harlem and opening the Record Shack. Another background shot in a later episode shows off a place called Nails Harlem next to a fish market, definitely inspired by a pair of shops just a block west of the record shack, Harlem Nails, and the neighboring 125th Street fish market. Due to gentrification and other changes in the neighborhood, none of these stores are still there, but you can find pictures of them. When I first saw these, I assumed that the background artists for 0080 must have consulted a book of New York City street photography when they were designing the colony. But now, after learning that there was a vogue for visiting Harlem and specifically the Apollo Theater just exactly when 0080 was being made, I wonder if someone on the staff was in one of those tour groups and took photos of the street themselves to use as references later. In fact, in a scene in episode 4, the show uses what is clearly a real map of real New York, and I wonder, could that particular map have started its life in a tour brochure or guidebook before being repurposed for the anime? Anyway, overall, about 250,000 tourists left Japan in 1964. Five years later, that number had grown to one and a quarter million. And then, between 1971 and 1972, it doubled to some two and a half million Japanese tourists going abroad. And more than half of them, one and a half million, traveled in organized tour groups. In 1990, when Dream of Maron Company came out, more than 10 million Japanese left their country to visit the world. That's one in every 13 people in the nation. So far I have focused mostly on the tourists abroad, what the tours were like, how they were received. Let's take a step back and look at Japan's domestic situation to better understand the development of Japanese tourism and the tour group. From the end of the war, it was largely impossible for the average Japanese citizen to travel abroad for leisure. The nation as a whole was severely impoverished. And leisure time was in short supply. There was no nationally guaranteed long-term vacation policy and the nation did not possess enough foreign currency to allow its citizens to exchange their yen into money that they could actually use while abroad. This lattermost concern led to a ban on tourists traveling abroad which naturally spurred the development of a robust internal tourist economy. Short trips to nearby hot springs were popular all the more so because companies would often organize group trips to keep their workers' morale up. And as foreign movies like the musical South Pacific spurred the desire to visit far-off places, cities angling to become popular vacation destinations started to synthesize a sense of foreign mystique. In southern Kyushu, one prefecture planted palm trees along their coasts so that they could look like Hawaii. A move that made them a major destination for honeymooning couples. In the north, on Hokkaido, the government reversed almost a century of policies designed to stamp out the culture of the colonized Ainu and instead made efforts to leverage it as a tourist draw, repackaging Ainu traditions for tourist consumption in special tourist villages, complete with sacred rites performed on schedule for the visitors. Blech. In fact, This pattern of domestic tourism echoed a centuries-long practice that began with the end of the Warring States period and the consolidation of power in the hands of the Tokugawa shoguns. But medieval tourism in Japan is its own whole research piece, so let me just mention it here to spark your imaginations and then move on, leaving you unsatisfied. In the 1950s, Japan experienced a major economic boom, sparked largely by the Korean War, and Japanese companies' business of supplying the United Nations military forces fighting in it. This, in turn, led to a major internal travel boom and, consequently, the establishment of a large number of travel agencies, quote, "...including ill-intentioned businesses to which many people fell victim." Fraud by travel agencies grew so bad that in 1952, the Japanese government passed the Travel Agency Business Act, requiring legitimate travel agencies to register with the government. Then, in 1964, foreign tourists flooded into Japan for the Olympics, and its government began to relax the restrictions on tourism abroad. It was around this time that travel agents started offering package tours. The largest travel agency in Japan, Japan Surisuto Bureau, or Japan Travel Bureau, launched its first domestic travel package business in 1962 and its first international package trips in 1968. It seems likely that other smaller companies beat them to the punch on this, but JTB's industry-defining presence means that we can use these as useful markers for when the practice moved from the niche to the mainstream. In 1970, Osaka hosted the World Exposition And, just as with the Olympics, foreign tourists flooded into Japan. But huge numbers of Japanese also came to see the exposition during its six-month run, and many did so as part of an enormous number of package tours organized for the occasion. According to one source, it was this event that cemented the package tour in Japanese tourist culture as the cheapest, easiest, and most popular way to travel. Part of the popularity of the international tour group goes back to national monetary policy, as exciting as that is. Remember that part of Japan's motivation for restricting foreign travel was the country's inadequate stock of foreign exchange currency. Although the government relaxed travel restrictions in 1964, they maintained a foreign exchange limit of no more than 500 US dollars for a private citizen. This limit increased over time and it reached $3,000 by 1973. A substantial amount, sure, but by no means unlimited. A traveler could stretch those precious dollars a lot farther if the biggest expenses, travel and accommodations, could be paid up front, in yen. And the way to do that was to buy a travel package from an agency. But the package tour was not without its hazards unscrupulous tour operators, either actively trying to fleece their unwitting customers or merely cutting costs to increase the profit margin, added on to the dangers inherent in traveling long distances to strange places. Like when one group of some 140 tourists, flying in for a continental tour of Europe, instead got to enjoy a tour of Danish hospitals after the breakfast omelets served to them on the plane instead delivered a massive load of Staphylococcus bacteria that produced, quote, cholera-like symptoms. The experience probably ruined the trip for many, but at least no one died. Some Japanese tourists were killed in air accidents, crashes, or collisions in midair or on runways. In Egypt, militants fired on a chartered bus carrying a Japanese tour group. Although, again, no one was hurt. The most high-profile disaster was probably in 1979, when 257 people, including 24 Japanese tourists, died in what is now called the Mount Erebus disaster. A DC-10 on a sightseeing mission over the South Pole had its computerized flight plan changed at the last minute, without anyone informing the crew. Instead of flying past the Antarctic volcano Mount Erebus, The new flight plan had them pass directly over it. As the plane neared the mountain, the captain began to descend in order to give the passengers a better view. White clouds in the sky and white snow on the mountain blended to make the two indistinguishable, and the crew, still believing they were almost 30 miles west of the mountain, didn't know it was there right in front of them until the ground proximity alarms started ringing. They tried to pull up, but it was too late. And the plane crashed, with no survivors. As much as it is a goofy SD Gundam comedy short, The Dream of Maron Company evokes the tension between the excitement and fun of international travel and the dangers and anxieties that suffuse it. Package tours are cheap and easy, but you put yourself in the hands of the tour operator and the guide. You worry about getting swindled by a fast-talking act guy and his QBLA boss. In the contrast between the glitzy Roman travel agency and the ramshackle Maron company, we can see the growing pains of an industry that could more than double in volume in a single year. In the colorful cast of fellow travelers, we see the annoyances and delights that are inevitable when traveling the world in a tour group of strangers, who may share little with you except their nationality. Maybe they represent the kinds of people one tended to encounter on a tour group. Retirees like the old Zaku One, Free spirited wanderers like the Sazabi, and strong willed, independent young women like the Alpha Ajiru. Suspiciously low prices on budget tour packages might just be a factor of group rates and bulk discounts, but on the other hand, one does hear horror stories about antiquated planes, broken down buses, ramshackle hotels, or cut rate breakfast omelettes. That sense of threat makes a trip into an adventure. And you can easily see how a close brush with a simulacrum of danger might be part of the service. But in an era when the New York Times published articles like what to do if you're caught in a coup while traveling, and the famous Angkor temples were simultaneously a popular tourist destination, a working archeological site, and an active war zone, it's not hard to guess where Amino and the others got the idea for their story about a tour group accidentally leaving their familiar lives and finding themselves unwilling participants in the one-year war.
0: Next time on episode 6.12, they're just little guys. We research and discuss SD Gundam Mark V, Hakobiya Rigizi no Kiseki, all three parts of Pikirienta Poresu, and the cutest fights and best color scheme. Summoning Circle It's just emotion. Untranslatable My favorite mobile suits are pretty obscure. You probably don't know them. Oops, all ghosts. Bopin 2, Revenge of Ufu Oofoo. Bling, bling. SD Gundam says the rich are all tax dodgers. Why does the Hyakushiki have a tongue? And a cat in an unexpected place. This served no purpose, but nevertheless.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at gundampodcast, or by email to gundampodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina, is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? I mean, wrong opinions, like, why is Bandai throwing money away, remaking Kukuru's Doan's Island, an episode that was already perfectly good, when they could have given that money to Takamatsu so that he could make a lavish, movie-length, legal, live-action version of SD Gundam Fierce Races? If people don't share wrong Gundam opinions like that, then they're just gonna keep building up inside until something terrible happens.
0: Oh, what a week, listeners.
1: (laughs) Catastrophe upon catastrophe. Yeah,
0: that's when you say, Nina, it's Tuesday.
1: (laughs) Captain, it's Tuesday. (laughs) Captain Nina's daughter, it's Tuesday.
0: (laughs) The nearly hundred-year-old building we live in sprang a leak somewhere between the third floor and our apartment. And for some reason, it's draining into our apartment. (laughs) We don't have a bedroom anymore. There's just a pit.
1: (laughs) That's a bit extreme.
0: We can't use it though. So functionally it's the same.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In every way except physical, our bedroom is a pit.
0: We can't go in there and we had to move as much of the furniture as possible out of it.
1: Who knows for how long?
0: Weeks, months.
1: Who can say? This time the construction noises are coming from inside the house. Oh, I'm sorry, I've ruined things for you.
0: Everybody says their own name like their Pokemon. Wacky races going on on the street outside.
1: <laughs> I think that's a good place to move on to the other episode. I'm gonna be right back because I heard some water noises, and I just want to investigate the situation. Yeah. You know okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you do it better.
0: I do. What
1: is the word I'm looking for? A Stinger. Character? No, or when a character like has a theme. theme.